So come to family camp, and uh, other than that, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to jump into the series that we've been doing in this one parable, the parable of the soils. Jesus, um, at one point in his ministry, has these huge crowds of people following him, and um, he's been healing people miraculously. He's been doing incredible things, and because of that, there's just tons of people that want to hear from him and see him, and they want to get as close as they can to him because, like, touching Jesus actually has healed some people. And so he goes on a boat in the water to give him some, some distance from these people, and he begins to preach from them, teach to them from a boat. And, of course, he picks this time to decide to start saying things to them in a way that is sort of not straightforward at all. He starts using parables, and the disciples don't totally understand this, but he explains it to them why he does. And the first parable that he tells is this parable of the soil. And so I'm going to read the parable one more time. We've read it every week, but um, it starts in verse 3 of, um, of Matthew chapter 13, and I'll put it up on the screen, and then we'll look at the verses that we're actually going to, the one verse that we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, Matthew 13 verse 3 says this, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus tells this parable, and the parable is about... Um, uh, a sower, which is anyone, really, who is speaking or spreading the word of God. Now, uh, in this instance, he's probably talking about himself as the sower or God as sort of the originator of the seed. But really, any time that the word of God, meaning like something from the Bible, the gospel itself, like the truth of Scripture, Jesus, any time that that is like shared by a person to another person, it's like a seed, um, and, and it, it can grow and it can produce fruits that is very abundant. But what determines whether or not that seed grows, at least in this parable, what determines it is the condition of the ground, the, the soil, the earth. So the first soil was the hard one. It's the hard heart. It's the person, says Jesus, who isn't really interested or listening. And that isn't always a person who's against or opposed to or on the outside of Christianity, that oftentimes the person with the hard heart is the one who is on the inside of the faith. In fact, the people that Jesus accused of being hard-hearted the most were the religious leaders of his day, people who were so convinced they had figured everything out that they were done thinking about stuff, and they would not hear anything that he would say to them. We talked last week about the shallow soil, which is one that seems perfectly suited for really quick, explosive growth that is very impressive. But because there's no room for roots, it is superficial, which means it's on the surface and above. It's only things that people see, but when the sun comes up, which normally gives life to plants, it scorches this plant. It's not able to consist. That faith is a person who comes to Jesus saying, what will you give me? What do you have for me? How can you make my life better? And many do approach God this way. And unfortunately, if we communicate the truth of God this way all the time, God makes your life better. God solves all of your problems. God fills every hole that's in your life, things like that. Then um, it's easy to think that this is all that there is to it. But what Jesus says is that when life stops being about, when your spiritual life stops being about what God gives me, and it starts being about um, the difficulty that it might bring into my life, that is when that plant kind of withers and dies. 
Here, Jesus is talking um, about this week, what we're looking at is the third soil, which we'll read about in verse 22 of this same chapter, where he actually explains to his disciples. In verse 22, Jesus says this, the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. You know, every, um, everything has sort of natural enemies. Every animal in nature has natural enemies, natural predators. Uh, all things have things that can do them harm and cause something bad to happen to them. Uh, you know, rain puts out fires, killer whales eat baby seals, Venus fly traps, you'll never guess what they eat. They eat flies, and they do a very good job of luring them in and trapping them and eating them. Spider webs catch bugs. Animals that do well are animals that are aware that there are predators out there and avoid them, know what can cause them the most harm. We all have our things that can cause us to lead us to destruction, right? For me, it's the Costco parking lot. If I go to the Costco parking lot, uh, I'm done. Like, I'm going to lose any sense of decency, and half the time I'm there, I just turn around and come back home. I'm just like, nope, not going to happen today. I'm just going to accept what it is, and this is Costco parking lot, and that's it for me, right? Um, you know, if I go into Costco, I'm actually in a great mood, but it's just in the parking lot for some reason that that happens. My wife, her greatest, her natural enemy, her natural enemy is car DVD players, which is such a random thing. But we bought these, like, aftermarket DVD player screens that go on the back of our headrests, and watching her try to make a movie play on one of these, turned backwards from the passenger seat of the front seat and watch how quickly she goes from being the most pleasant, kind, loving person in the world to like the most furious, rage-filled, volcano version of herself that I've ever seen. Only car DVD players do this. And so it's crazy. It's really crazy. We all have these things that just can wreck us, can destroy us. And what Jesus is doing here is he is saying something very important. He is saying, hey, watch out. Because these are the things that can wreck you. These are the things that can cause you to ultimately not produce fruit, even if the seed has begun to grow, has been planted, has even put down roots, and seems to be doing fine. There's something about, we're going to look at basically these two things, but there's two main ideas that I just want to put out there right now and then just kind of I'll unpack them as we go. The first is this. Jesus is saying two things here, and he's saying them with his two examples of the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth. The first is he's saying to us, you cannot serve two kingdoms. You cannot be a part of the kingdom of God and serve the kingdom of this world. You cannot be a person of God and following Jesus and yet be just as wrapped up, just as invested, just as concerned with the worries of the world and of life and know he's not just talking about the stuff you see when you turn on the news and watch the world report, right? He's talking about the actual things that we worry about in our lives. We cannot serve two kingdoms is the first thing that Jesus is saying here. You either serve one or another, but you cannot serve both. One will win out. The other thing he's saying when he talks about money is that we cannot serve two gods. That you can only serve one God, but you cannot serve two. And if you try, one is always going to win out. And he is, he is, putting, he is putting money and wealth, it seems, or a love of those things against serving God. These are the two basic things that we're talking about, but the first one um, has to do with 
um, these worries of life. Jesus says that there's this plant and, and it takes root and it begins to grow and it's doing pretty well, but there's something about the environment around it that is starting to affect it. If you've ever had blackberry bushes in your life, you know exactly what he's talking about because that's what this is. These are plants that grow and grow. They have thorns of the thorny bush and you know if you have blackberries that you start out not having a little planter that you had and then you start out not having a garden that you had and then you end up having a backyard that you had if you don't keep these things under control because they will grow and grow and they will choke out anything inside. They will consume any area of space. That's how fast they grow. They don't seem to need any help. They're doing just fine growing on their own. So if you plant a seed in the midst of that and the plant begins to grow in a healthy way, if those thorns come up, what are they going to do? They're going to choke out the life of it. It certainly won't be able to become fruitful. It's not really going to be able to grow as it's supposed to. The first one of these things is the worries of this life. He says, the worries of this life. Now, Jesus told people when they began following him that they needed to leave everything. It was pretty extreme. He would go to a disciple and he would say, oh, you're fishing. Drop your net, follow me. And they would. He'd say, get out of the boat, follow me. They would. He'd say, sometimes leave your family. The family you grew up in, the family you were a part of, that you're kind of totally invested in this family still. You haven't gone off yet for yourself. And he says, now go off, come, come with me, follow me as you do it. He asked Matthew to leave, uh, when he was Levi, to leave his, his tax collector booth, I guess. He was a tax collector and he was in a booth and he was making good money, even though he wasn't doing things he was proud of. And Jesus said, walk away from it, come follow me. He would continue to ask the disciples and people, he'd be like, just drop everything and follow me, which is really extreme. Then what he would do is he would tell them this. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them what I've taught you. So he tells his disciples to go and do what he did. That's their job now. But what they don't seem to do is they don't seem to go and ask everybody to leave everything they have and follow them. Something different happens, it seems. What we then begin to see is things like Pentecost, thousands of people coming to faith, and the church is formed. And so what happens then is a Christian is a follower of Jesus, a person who is a part of a house church. And so then, here's what's crazy about it is that Jesus and these disciples, through the teachings of Jesus, they're still calling people to all the same things that Jesus called them to. Walk away from this, give this up, let go of this thing, let go of this thing. But they're still a part of their families. They still work their jobs. Even people who were servants, he's like, go on serving as a servant. People who were wealthy, they continued to be wealthy usually. Um, People still owned houses. In fact, the churches met in houses that were owned by people there. People stayed a part of their families. They stayed a part of their marriage, even to the point to where the authors of the New Testament give advice to people on what to do when one person in a marriage comes to faith and the other one doesn't. So the assumption is, the presumption is that in order to follow Jesus fully, you don't actually physically have to walk away from all the things you've ever been invested in, but you're still called by Jesus to die to yourself and walk away from these things. So what does that mean? It's simple. In order to be a part of the kingdom of God, in order to follow Jesus, you have to turn your back, basically, on the priorities and the cares of the world and say they will instead now be on the priorities of Jesus. But you have to find a way to do that while you're still involved in those things. You're in the world. You're not of the world. You work at your job, but your job is not your life anymore. You have a family, but your family is not what defines you and gives all meaning and purpose to you. 
uh, your, your wealth, your resources, the things you do for fun and pleasure, all of those things uh, don't go away necessarily, but they are no longer the cares of your life when compared to the kingdom itself. Jesus is saying to us that if you're going to be a part of God's kingdom, then the good news is you don't have to worry about this worldly kingdom anymore. You don't have to carry around the weight and the burden and the anxieties that a person does who doesn't believe in God. We ultimately live in a secular society. We do. We live in a secular fallen world, which means most other people are kind of living their entire lives not because God is a part of this picture of the idea, but they're living life in the way that you would live life if God wasn't a reality. And so he says, like, uh, we're not to have the same cares and concerns as everyone else if we're now a part of the kingdom of God. The good news is you can be a part of his kingdom, but that means you're not any longer a part of this other kingdom. If you do allow these things to continue to be your main concerns, if you allow them to be your main priorities, then what happens is they are that thorny plant that grows up. They will choke out the life of this good plant that's being produced in your life. But this isn't that simple for us. That's why Jesus tells us again and again, do not fear, do not be anxious. The thing that we read this morning as we began worshiping together. Why does Jesus reiterate these commands again and again and again? Because uh, we worry about the things of this life. We worry about the things of this world. We care about the things that are happening around us and to us constantly. And Jesus says to us, do not be afraid. Do not worry. Why? Because you're going to be okay. You have a heavenly father who loves you, who is really... Uh, the most important thing in your life and who is in control, says Jesus. He is in control. So do not let these things take up too much space in your mind, in your heart, of your time, in your heads. When I think about um, the worries of life, right? The worries of life is a general thing. He's talking in part probably about things that were not good for people, unhealthy things for people that they didn't walk away from. They began to grow in the faith, but they went like, I still can have this. I can still keep this thing. I can still let this be a part of my life. And that thing choked out the new growth in Christ. But what he's also talking about is just the concern for the things of this world that we all feel living in this world because we are invested in it and we live in it in the flesh. And what happens when these things begin to be more worried than we know what to do with this, we get anxious. We deal with anxiety for these things. I am, I am very familiar with this concept of anxiety. I'm, I'm an anxious person by nature. I, I grew up with anxious people. I uh, am the kind of person who goes, uh, if we're not freaking out, we're not paying attention kind of a person because uh, there's lots of reasons to always freak out and always be frustrated and anxious. When I think about the things that cause me anxiety, that have caused me significant anxiety in my life, They've all been not things that are unusual, not things that are um, specific to me. The first time I ever had like a panic attack, a panic attack, was um, when we adopted our son and brought him home. And it was like, what have we done? Like, 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 I can't take care of another person, right? 
And it was exactly the same feeling that we had when we brought our daughter home from the hospital and we adopted her as a newborn. And again, we're like, uh, I don't know what to do with this, right? Like, we used to, uh, this is not scripted, but whatever. We used to keep, uh, we, we used to, we, you're like, oh, this is good. Here we go. Here we go. Uh, we, we had like a, a, a little rocker that like rocked her, a little, little crib thing, and we had it in um, our walk-in closet, you know, with, that's where we put it because it was in our room and kind of not in our room and this is where she would be. And then one night we decided to like take her out of that and put her in our bed or something. And then that was the night that the, the, the clothes hanger bar, like the bar that holds all my hangers, fell and like literally like went like this and I just came in in the morning and it was like this in the little uh the little rocker. And you know how heavy those things are, right? You know how heavy your clothes are, right? You get two hands full of hangers. You're like, I can't, I can't go up the stairs. I'm going to need some help from a kid or something, right? It was that heavy. You have things like that happen, and you're just like, I'm not up to this. I can't do this, right? And I remember feeling just, just overwhelmed with anxiety simply because I was like, I don't think I can take care of this person. I, there, I, it came to my mind, all the things that I, I got to stay healthy. I got to have enough money. I got to have a house that's good enough. I've got to do all these things. And, and that was the first time I remember, like, am I having a heart attack kind of a thing? And going, oh, no, wait, look, this is just me being dramatic. It's called a panic attack, and, and I can't handle the normal things of life, apparently. That was the first time I realized I couldn't handle the normal things of life. I think a couple of years before that, I got really freaked out about heaven for a while. And I was like, am I really just going to be playing a harp in a cloud? And I got freaked out about that. I was a philosophy major. This is what happens. Anyway, second service, guys, second service. I cannot describe to you how different it is than first service. I hope none of you were hoping to get to football. Um, I have had periods of such great anxiety about my job, about, about my, my, my effectiveness in my job, about, about different seasons in my job, when I was satisfied, I was dissatisfied, people appreciated me, I didn't think they appreciated me. I've had issues, uh, I, I've actually had no issues major with my health, and yet I've managed to somehow have a tremendous amount of anxiety about my health, because, you know, why not, right? It's something I can't control, so I should be anxious about it. The things that I have, like, physically invested in and built and done have caused me tremendous amounts of anxiety at times the more I've cared about them. We once redid a kitchen in our last house, and we put all these floors in the house. And this was back in the day when, you know, laminate flooring was a new invention. It was this great, incredible, cheap, cool-looking thing. And they just were like, don't get it wet too much, you know? And we were like, well, you know, we don't live anywhere near water, so that's fine. And so we put it all in, and I'll never forget the day I got the FaceTime call from Ellie. I still can't get a FaceTime call and not, like, freak out. Because, like, if I get a FaceTime call, it means I'm going to have to yell at a kid, or it means that there's something broken in our house. And so um, I, I just, just one day, I want a FaceTime call that's like, I love you, Dad. Hey, had a good day. Have a good day at work. Just want to let you know things are going great, right? No, hasn't happened. I get a FaceTime call. There's water coming up from our floors. Like, there's water coming up between the cracks of our laminate. I rush home. I rip out the floors of our kitchen. I don't know why there's water coming up from our subfloor, but there is water coming up. I can't find it anywhere. It's stopped from wherever it's coming from. I dry everything up. I uh, decide I to go get some scrap pieces that were in the garage that I, that I bought too much of, and I'm so glad I did. I lay it all back down. I spend the whole day and night doing that, and I'm like, Ellie, I think I can get this done in time for our small group to come over. 
why wouldn't I try that, right? So uh, I finish it, and I get all the pieces in, and I go, finally, our group can come over. Let everybody know it's a green light. They can be here in like 30 minutes or whatever. I don't know. And then I put all the dirty stuff that got all gross and dirty in the sink, and I decided to wash all the dishes. And that was when I forgot that when I was trying to figure out where the leak was, for some strange reason, I disconnected my sink from the, you know, the drain. And so as I'm washing all my dishes, water's pouring down underneath my floors and getting under them. And that, when I realized that that was happening for a good couple of minutes, that was the moment when I'm not afraid to admit that I, I crumbled to the ground. I curled up in the fetal position. I began to weep. And um, uh, Ellie just was like, okay, uh, I'm going to call everybody and tell them we're not having this tonight. And something inside of me, something that was like hopeful and joyful and like a spark of life died that day. It broke that day inside of my brain when I was so like, this is, I can't do this. I can't do this, right? Uh, there have been these times where I'm like finding myself so like, like wrecked by things. And there are things that I look back on and I go like, was that really worth being anxious about? Was that really something I could control? Was that really something I should even care that much about? And most of the time, they aren't. And yet, as we're living this life in real time, these things come up, and we feel the anxiety about them. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying that so many of these things are the things that will be the enemy of a fruitful Christian life. It's not the pain and suffering that you're afraid of. It's not the resources that you think you may not have. It's actually allowing the cares and the worries of this life to get so in your field of vision that you can't see past them. Because here's how deceptive they are, right? What, what our anxieties and our cares and our priorities tell us about this life is they say, if you just look at me for a second and you work on me and you figure me out, then I promise I won't ever bother you again. And so we do that. And then the next thing comes up and we do that. But they don't actually go away, it turns out. They stay there. And so what we're actually doing is we're like building this mountain of things that I have work, I gotta work on this, I gotta care about this, I gotta invest in this, I gotta take care of this thing, get this thing. And our life gets filled with those things. And what we realize is we've actually just gotten so used to spending most of our energy and our time and our thoughts on these things that are really not of the kingdom of God at all, that they have become the majority of our life, of our heart, of our mind of our field of vision. And Jesus is saying that they will do that. It will grow up. The plant doesn't die down if you take care of it, it turns out. In Luke 21, Jesus says, watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down by the cares of this life. He says the cares of this life are like a weight that you'll be dragging around or they'll be weighing you down when you should otherwise have buoyancy, be able to float or whatever it is you're supposed to do when you're not weighed down. One of the ways that we try to deal with this is with resources, with our wealth, with the material things that we have. We think, I can probably control these things if I just have a way of providing enough stuff. And that's where we turn to the second thing that Jesus tells us we have to really be on the lookout for if we desire to produce fruit in our Christian life, which is um, this deceptive um, love of wealth, this deceitfulness of wealth, deceptiveness of wealth. So what Jesus is talking about here, the, the deceitfulness of wealth, this word deceitfulness is a, is, a, is a noun. It can be used to express both pleasure 
and deception. Like pleasure and deception, right? Yeah, those things go hand in hand if we think about it enough, right? Proverbs is very clear that our money and our material possessions will actually try to trick us into seeing things differently than they really are. That's what it says. There is something about uh, a love of money or materialism, which is an attachment to the things that money provides, which I think probably is more the case for most people I talk to in our culture today. Uh, We wouldn't tend to think of it as a love of money. We would think of it as materialism, which is an attachment to things, a, a love of things, an enjoyment of things. There's something about this that Jesus says is deceitful, meaning it's trying to trick us into believing something that isn't actually real, that isn't actually true. Jesus says this um, in another part of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Like, wow, of all the things to put on the opposite of God, of all the things to say this would be another God to you, you would say money? Of all the things that I can get into, of all the things that people could do, why, Jesus, money? Well, because uh, we look to money to do for us, to, to wealth, to do for us the things that God himself does for us. We look for it to provide. We look for it for control. We look for it for security. We look to it for pleasure and enjoyment and goodness. We look to it for those things instead of looking to God for those things. But he says something before this that's really confusing if you've ever read the whole thing together. You go, Why? what does this even mean? He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What Jesus is talking about here, I'm going to make this really easy this morning, is the most important thing that we're going to talk about this morning. So important that I probably won't say everything else that I was going to say for the rest of the sermon if it means that this is something that we all walk away with and say, I really need to think about this today. What Jesus is talking about here, this eye and the lamp of the body and your eyes being healthy. And why is he attaching it to to money, to love of money? It seems as though what he's saying is that there's something that happens when we get attached to money, to things, to the comfort of those things and securing those things. There's something that happens there that changes the way that our vision, our sight works. It's as though someone who had lights on and could see, is what he's saying, you could see the world around you, you could see what was really going on, is now gone dark. And this person is now unable to see what's really happening. What Jesus is talking about here, which is so huge for us today, is this. Materialism distorts how we see everything. It distorts how we see everything. It's why this week, as I looked at this passage, and I thought, like, it was, it was one of the hardest sermons to write, because I thought, 
it just seemed like such a difficult thing to communicate. And as I tried to think about why does this seem so hard to communicate? Why does it seem so hard to communicate? It was because of this thing. I can tell you this. As a pastor, I'm not going to exaggerate here. I'm not exaggerating. As a pastor, we're prone to do that sometimes. That's not happening right now. Uh, As a pastor, um, I often have people come and tell me about the things that they struggle with. Um, I've had people confess sin to me. I've had people share the struggles in their lives and the damage that it's causing. I've talked to people and had them come to me and share with me about the lust that they have struggled with, the the, the anger that they have felt and the bitterness that it's doing, that it's causing inside of them. They'll talk about the pride that they are dealing with and what it's doing to their relationships and the way they feel about other people. I've had people come and talk with me about, about affairs, about struggling with addictions, and about how those things have hurt their lives and how they feel the need to move on past them and to confess and to get better with God. But the one thing that I have never, ever, ever had anyone confess to me, share with me a real major struggle with, is greed, is the love of money, the love of wealth. So somehow, in like the wealthiest nation in the wealthiest time, some of the wealthiest people in it, whether you feel that way or not, find ourselves in a place where we don't see how this could be true in our own lives. It's as though something happens to your ability to perceive what's going on when this particular thing becomes an issue for you. Now, that's not to say that every person I've ever known has struggled with this, but it is to say that all the people I know who have struggled with it have not felt the need, have not seen it enough to say, uh, I need help with this, I need to move past this thing. Because the truth of the matter is that the adulterous affair will probably lead to wreckage in your life eventually. The substance abuse addiction that you have will lead to wreckage in your life eventually. The pride and the bitterness and the anger will eventually break you down enough that your relationships will suffer and you will see that whether you change it or not. But do you know what's tricky about wealth and about money and about materialism? Is that that doesn't really happen all the time with those things. That life can just get more comfortable that you can get more stable, that you can get more ahead of things and feel better about how you're doing with things, and it doesn't actually feel like everything's falling apart. The other reason why this is so difficult is because we all know people that have more money than us, right? Like, all you have to do is go, believe me, it's not a problem for me. Personally, I've never had enough money anyway, um, and I'm certainly not wealthy now. And everybody knows that the love of money is something that wealthy people deal with. It's something that rich people deal with. Well, if we could ask the rest of the world what they think, and they would probably say that you're wealthy. But instead of doing that, we can just say this. There is always someone else that we can point to and say, oh, that's what a love of money probably looks like, right? That's what it means to really care too much about it. If I cared a lot about it, if I was attached to it, I would have more stuff. I would have more in my bank account. I wouldn't be in the position that I'm often in. What Jesus is saying to us, and this is the thing I'm saying that I think is the most important thing to take away with with this morning, is this. We don't ask the question. We don't look inward in this area of our lives, I think, particularly. 
I'm not saying that no one ever does. I'm not saying that you never have. I'm just saying that I have found that to be the case with this specific thing over and above other things. We, like, can't see it, you know? And I think there's a problem with that. And I think that's why Jesus says this thing about our eyes and about the light and the lamp of everything. Materialism distorts how we see everything. It blinds us spiritually to whether or not it's a problem in our lives. It makes us choose jobs, not because we're good at them, not because we want them, not because they help people, but because of money. And materialism causes us to act in ways that we otherwise wouldn't act because of money. We find ourselves in a, in a place where our conduct in our job, right, is something that, well, I need this job, I need this money. And so we find ourselves doing things that we shouldn't do or being a part of things that we are not proud of or even looking at the system that maybe we're working within or maybe the company that we're in or the things that we're doing. And rather than saying, like, I, I don't know that this is right or I think we need to go another way or I think I need to speak up or I don't know that I'm helping people like I thought I was before, instead of that, often the greatest fear, the fear in that situation, right, is my financial security, my financial stability. And materialism and, and, and the need for that security is what causes us to not stop and do those things. It's our livelihood, right? But it also blinds us. Materialism blinds us to our own lifestyles. It actually blinds us to whether or not we are living a certain kind of lifestyle, do I really need to spend this much money on this? Do I really need to be putting this much money into my house? Do I really need to be spending this much money on my comfort, on my leisure? Do I need to be spending this much money on my clothes? It's easy to think of other people who spend more and do more and seem more consumed with all those things. But we don't really ask those questions, really. I don't think we ask them very often. Because I think something that happens, we're blinded to looking inward at those things. You don't go there, you don't ask, you don't say, wait a minute, are there ways that I could be giving more of my money to others, to the poor, to my friends, to my family, to my neighbors, to the church? Are there ways in which I could be more radically generous? Well, I would have to change things about my life, right? Well, that would be a whole other discussion altogether because my lifestyle is something that I might be blind to looking at this way. And so we don't want to ask, we don't want to think about those things. I think that this is what materialism does to us. And what it, the reason it happens so easily is kind of what I mentioned before. Uh, money does two things that only God can really do for us, it seems. We think it does something. And we look to it for this thing. But it's something that only God can do for us. Money gives us security. If I have money, then I will have control in an uncontrollable world. I, was, I picked a really terrible week to meet with a financial planner, um, but I did. Uh, set up the meeting a long time ago, and uh, it just kind of happened, and it was as excruciatingly painful as I think those meetings always are. are. And, of course, I was, like, fascinated with uh, what it's like to do that and to meet with people and talk about something like money because part of this week. And so as, as he was sharing with us different parts of what he does and different experiences he's had, one of the things that I was not expecting um, to hear from him is just all of the, all of the sort of sad recounting of, of situations where people had... Um, 
Basically, their love of money is what had driven them to his services. And uh, wanting to help people save and be frugal and be wise, but also um, usually you're interacting with people who have an unhealthy relationship with money. You're either interacting with people who have an unhealthy relationship, so they spend everything they have and they never think about the future. It's all about the here and the now, and it's very unwise and reckless and bad. Or you talk to people who save everything that they have and are constantly focused on the security and the comfort and the, and the confidence that can come and the safety that can come from knowing that they're going to be taken care of down the road if they just do it. He's telling me about a couple that saved and saved almost everything that they could, well, everything that they could, uh, they didn't have kids, and they, they were planning to retire early because they didn't like their jobs at all, and they were just wearing them down physically and in every other way. So they, they made it their goal to just kind of defer life until retirement and to retire early. And a year before retirement, the wife passed away. The money wasn't able to actually give them what it was they thought it could give them. It wasn't able to give them any of the security that they ultimately thought that they could have. And the mistake he watched them make was choosing to put too much confidence in that thing, even at the point of deferring their own life. He said there was nothing more painful than, than giving um, that life insurance check to the husband and to have to give him that, something that would, that would hopefully normally help someone and be a positive thing, realizing how incredibly painful it was and the regret that they felt over that. We think that money will give us security. When the anxieties and the pressures and the worries of this world come up, we often look in a materialistic culture, we look to wealth, we look to things as a way of giving us some stability in that. I can take control with this thing. But it doesn't ultimately give us that. It is deceiving you. It is telling you it will take care of you. you ever, I mean, we've all been deceived. It's like the worst feeling in the world, Right? to stay up late at night at 3 a.m., order something you see on TV because you think you're convinced you need a knife that cuts through tomatoes and a boot and a solid head of a hammer. And not only do you find out that it can't really do all that after like a month, but you didn't actually need it in the first place, and you feel deceived. You were in a weak place when you bought it at 3 o'clock in the morning, and, and so it serves you right. But we know what that feels like, to, to actually be told one thing and then it's another thing. And this is what wealth and a love of money is what he's talking about. A love of money, not money itself. What a love of money does to a person is it deceives us. It says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to solve all your problems. And it doesn't. We find ourselves deceived. The other thing that it does is it gives us significance. We have a tendency to look at people who have less money. Let's say uh, we have a tendency to look at someone who we think is poor. And we don't just see a person and say, you are um, financially, uh, you know, worse off than me. We think you are worse off than me, objectively. We don't think I've made better decisions with my money or I've done better things with my resources. We think I'm better. We find value and significance in what we can accumulate in the money in our bank accounts and the security that we have in that, we think. We don't just see it as money. We see it as a reflection of us. We see it as a way of loving other people, as our families. We think, if I love my family, we'll have these things. Our house will be like this. Our, 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 our resources can go to these things. And we equate one with another. We think significance always means more in a culture that is as materialistic as ours. 
when the way that we look is skewed the way that it can be, this is what happens. We begin to equate money with significance. Money is ultimately another God that, uh, that we can serve in the place of God. And I think what Christians tend to do in a culture that is materialistic, in an affluent materialistic culture, is turn a blind eye to this thing, which is the thing that we might want to ask more questions about, and instead focus on a lot of other behaviors and other things and say, uh, you know, these are the things that matter. These are the things we need to worry about. Not to say that those things aren't important. One early church father has this great quote. It sounds kind of weird, but I think it's a great quote. He says, we share our table with all, but we do not share our bed with all. Okay, you know, that's, uh, put that on your house, right? Like, that would actually be a pretty good sign to put up in your house now that I think about it. I've got a new sign for our guest bathroom. There you go. Um, Like, oh, shoot, you know. Um, What they're saying is they're saying our generosity is, uh, we are generous with our resources and what we have in a culture that thinks that it's good to be generous uh, with your promiscuity. That it's, that it's good to be uh, more liberal with the rules in your lifestyle in other ways. Um, uh, Pastor Tim Keller is commenting on this quote when he explains it much better than I just did. He says this. He said, in other words, pagans are promiscuous with their bodies, but very stingy with their money. Christians are very stingy with their bodies and incredibly promiscuous with their money. I think this is very convicting. I think it's very easy for us to, to see one thing and not see another. Not because it's not a problem or because it's not there, but just because it's such a part of the way that we live and it's such a part of the way that we see the world. And Jesus' teaching on it is so abundantly clear, is it not? The way that Jesus talks about money is like it's this dangerous thing we have to be very careful with. The truth is that the more money that people amass usually the less content they are. The more we worry and stress about the things of this world, the less we feel that we've been able to let go of those things. And the deception is this plant growing up amidst us, these thorns, choking out this life that's supposed to produce fruit. How do you know that this might be happening to you? How do you know that you might be uh, this plant that Jesus is talking about? I think the biggest tell is that you don't find your faith to be fruitful. Because this plant isn't producing fruit. It can't produce fruit. You see, the first group wasn't unhappy. They were totally oblivious. They're the hard soil. They're like, whatever, I don't even know what just happened. You know, they're fine. The second group, they experienced dramatic, wonderful growth, and then the sun burned the thing out. It was gone really fast. But for the most part, they were doing great that whole time. They were feeling good. They were happy. They're just moving on to the next thing. The fourth group, spoiler alert for next week, it's the best soil. It's pretty darn happy. This is the only one that is in a state that's pretty miserable. And so one of the tells is to, is to be like, I, 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 I am following Jesus. I do want this. I see this plant growing in my life, and I want this to grow more and more. But when I'm honest and I look, I, I wonder, uh, why don't I see fruits being produced? in this life of mine? Why don't I see changes happening from year to year? Uh, You don't see yourself growing in unusual ways. You don't see anybody's life being changed through you. You are being choked. You are the one that's kind of 
miserable and unfruitful. We often talk about apathy in the Christian life or sort of these periods of, of struggling, you know. Where is God now? And um, why am I not growing now? And why don't I feel the way um, that I used to about things, maybe as passionate in my faith? I haven't burned out. I'm not totally done, given up. But I just don't get why it feels this way. I think the answer to that is very clear according to Jesus. It's very possible that there is something that is growing alongside your faith that you've assumed is okay. You're like, no, we can't have two kingdoms. We can't have two kings. It's totally fine. I can just keep, keep them both going. And how do we avoid this happening? It's simple. Number one, admit that this is a reality in our life. That the cares of this world are absolutely a reality in our life. That a, that a love of materialism and wealth is absolutely a reality in most of our lives. Admit it, that it's a reality. And begin to ask the question of what it actually looks like for you and in your life. I mean, it's even true that um, people who help us uh, do well and be wise with our finances are not necessarily helping us do what Jesus is calling us to do. I mean, a great financial advisor or a person that teaches you how to get rid of debt and manage your money will be teaching you something that ultimately does involve focusing more on your money, right? Like the goal of that is to be wiser and better with my money that I have so I can have more financial stability and be wiser with that. Those things are not built on the idea of the radical generosity and steps of faith that Jesus talks about. They might say to do that once you've accumulated enough money, but that's not what Jesus says at all. So we can't expect those who help us with our finances, those that help us do these things better, will be the ones to point out for us like what it looks like to see this plant choking out the other one. We admit that this is a reality in our life. We bring our worries themselves before the Lord. Of all the things that, that are cares in your life, the plates that you're spinning, the things that stress you out, have you lately actually brought them before God? Said to God, I give this thing to you. I need your help in this. Help me to hold on to this more loosely, knowing that I can trust that you've got it, God. Don't just listen to our hearts, but talk to them. We tell our hearts what is true and what is right according to God's word. We tell our hearts what ought to be most important and what ought to be the most important thing to us. And I think the simplest thing that we can do is just be generous. We be generous with our resources. We give to others. We give sacrificially to others, recognizing this money doesn't belong to me, but that it belongs to God and he's entrusted me with it so that I can use it for his purposes. To be generous with our lives instead of holding up in our worries about the things that we have going on. Do you know how hard it is to invest in relationships with people? Do you know how hard it is to make time to care for other people when you're anxious about the worries and the things in your life? It's very difficult. So we start by being generous. We start by letting go of those things more. I was reading this last week about the rates of addiction, substance abuse, and mental health in young people in America. And what I was reading may surprise you or it may not, but that people who study these things several years ago began 
trying to understand, um, you know, they presumed that these things were most prevalent in poorer neighborhoods and in the inner city. And they were constantly taking all this data and information from poorer neighborhoods and lower class neighborhoods in the inner city, presuming that that's where substance abuse and mental health would exist the most problems. So then when they finally went back to the affluent areas and the neighborhoods to get something to compare this to, to get something else to give them some more data, guess what they found that shocked them the most? Was that mental health and substance abuse and addiction were significantly higher in affluent areas. And what they cited as the cause of these things was one, the overwhelming pressures, the anxieties of having to perform in life. And the other was the disconnect from their families who had to earn a lot of money. Parents had come to believe that um, by providing for their children, by getting them enough stuff, they were doing the best thing for them. They even told themselves that, oh, it's good to be independent and by themselves and all these different things, that's good for them. But really had given up the relationship with their children for the sake of providing things for them, convinced that this would give them the best life possible. It's crazy to think about that. As we talk about how you shape soils, how do we shape the right kind of soil in the next generations, in our own children and grandchildren, nieces and nephews, and the kids in our Sunday school classes and the kids in our youth groups, as we ask that question, how can we influence that soil to be the right kind? We have to understand that this might be the one where we make the most difference is with this soil right here that Jesus talks about. Because the values that we have, we pass on. Where we put our confidence is where the next generation sees our confidence. It's not in our words, it's in our deeds. It's not in the things that we say, it's the things that we really trust are going to take care of us. It's by communicating that we trust, ultimately, above all else, that God is our Father and He takes care of His children. That God is our Father and He is far more satisfying than anything money can buy. He is far more glorious than anything money can accomplish and achieve in my life. And here's the best thing, I think, is that the only reason why we can live this way, the only reason why we could possibly let go of these things, the only reason why we could possibly let go of the cares of this world, let go of a love of wealth, the only reason we could possibly do it is because we have God is because Jesus died for us and built, has a relationship with us, and because of that, I have more in him. I have everything in him. And I don't need to find it in these other things. There is very little hope for a person who doesn't know and understand and accept the gospel. There is very little hope. Because all you can do is stress about the world in this life. Because that's all you know, and that's all you have to look forward to. There is... There is very little reason to hope in something other than your money and what you can accumulate and what you can buy and earn and save if you don't have something else that means even more than that thing. The good news is that we have a God who is far greater than any of the things that we could acquire in this world for ourselves. And we have a God who says again and again and again, I love you, you're my child, I'm in control, I'm taking care of you, trust me. And that's the only reason that we can live without absolutely crippling anxiety, if you ask me.